Hello, this is Improvised Radio Theatre with Dice, with me, Michael Kuehl. And me, Roger Bell West. And to start, stroke, end the year, uh, we have a sort of a potpourri of random stuff. Uh, we're going to be uh, going on at length about some of the offers of the Bundle of Holding. We're going to be um, uh, talking about our plans for the next year. Roger has plans, I merely have ambitions. And uh, we're going to be having an end-of-year, start-of-year quiz and uh, see how we do at that. But before we get into any of that, I would like to thank several generous donors. Uh, Robert Wolfe, John Hagen, David Dow have all dropped some money in our tip jar. Thank you very much, gentlemen. We appreciate it, and some of it will go to offset the cost of the festive season. (laughs) And uh, if, if you would like to uh, join them, uh, paypal.me slash rogerbw. Um, say that it's for IRTD so that I know I should share it with Mike. Share it with me. He shares it with me. He's really very kind. He says he's given me half. I trust him. I trust him so much. Back in your cell. Yes, nice to that. We have rather a long list from our friends at the Bundle of Holding uh, this time, some of which is going to expire very shortly after this drops. So you might want to pay attention. And, and some of you may have regrets about not listening to this earlier. Um, to emphasise again, we get uh, free copies of the, uh, of the stuff that they're putting up, um, but we are not otherwise paid for this, and we do... As you may hear, how are criticisms of some of the stuff that goes out. So let's start with something I'm willing to recommend quite strongly, which finishes um, first, which is Blades in the Dark. It's the first of... It's, it is sort of inspired out of um, uh, Powered by the Apocalypse games, but um, with the ma- major changes in the in the mechanics and it's inspired a set of um, subsidiary games um, which are known as Forged in the Dark games and I think some of those are included in this bundle. Let me have a look. Yeah, Uh, uh, bearing in mind one of the reasons for that is that as with Savage Worlds they have extremely generous licensing terms like in fact most modern systems. They've realised that the system is not Particularly when it's a modern lightweight system, the system is not the bit you want. You did all the work on. You want to get paid for the setting, yeah. uh, which you do get paid for, is is the important bit. So some, somebody else wants to do something with a different setting. They're doing most of the work. You might as well yeah. let them have your mechanics. Um, so what you're getting here, um, the core offer is Blades in the Dark itself, which is a game uh, set in a city that is always dark in a in a universe where the sun seems to have vanished uh, some time ago. And you are playing... Yeah, never mind that. Uh, there's thieving to be done. There's thieving to be done. For some reason or other, the sun going out has caused everybody in, in the city uh, to be a rogue of some sort or another. And you are the rogues at the bottom, starting as rogues at the bottom, uh, rogues with, uh, with a very small organisation and not much territory. Um... And you're spending your time doing various illegal things. You've got a company, and the company is a character that is um, also uh, very much developed. In all the Forged in the Dark stuff, a company is something that's very much developed. And uh, you're going around doing jobs. And it's a very preparation-light, highly improvised game. And it's it's attempting to do... um, to model the narrative rather than model the event. So your first role of every adventure is to um, decide how well your initial approach to the um, uh, to the job, the heist, the uh, bit of trickery you're going to pull off, is going to go. And this can mean from you've just waltzed into the house disguised as a troubadour uh, to you're hanging by your fingernails from the roof, and there are guard dogs beneath. You're probably wondering how I got into this situation. Well, (laughs) 
those are, those of you who are paying attention may be wondering. Um, it, it it is a game which does its best not to kill people, does its best to corrupt people, to make people pay the price of doing all these dangerous and wicked things for all this length of time. And basically the aim of the characters is to get out uh, with enough money to live in comfort, twitching slightly, during retirement. And, and you know, aim... freezing to death, but who cares about that? Hey. Uh, well, yes, yes. As nobody, nobody seems to want to put the sun back on. Um, the, uh, and, and the game of the company is to uh, become one of the great and mighty companies of the, of the city and rise and show those sneering aristocrats up there uh, what they uh, uh, were, uh, what they, they were missing. This comes with um, uh, decks, uh, card decks for characters, crews, deals, factions, and locations, and uh, and for heists which you can put together. Um, there's a system whereby the things that you have done pay uh, play into the things that you that the GM is going to throw at you next. Uh, that works, well, it works, uh, pretty well. Um, and about more than I, that I cannot say, it's a game that I recommend. It's a game that I've played both as GM and as uh, as player, and it's some of its derivatives, and it's something I enjoy. The supplementary ones are A Court of Blades, which is basically... A fantasy world um, courtly faction trying to sc scramble their nasty way up to the top. Mountain Home, which is um, setting up a, a, a dwarven fortress as a role-playing game. There's a single a version, uh, single-player game called A Torch in the Dark, in which you're fighting the undead. And there's... Cosmosaurs, dinosaurs protecting the galaxy from evil. As you do. Which makes me, as, 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 as you do, because who wouldn't want to protect the galaxy from evil? Especially if you're a, if you're a dinosaur. Well, you know, so, I've, I've, I've been given these this tough hide, these sharp claws, this brain the size of a walnut. Obviously, what else am I going to do with it? I, I was thinking of chewing on, on the tops of trees myself, but who knows? So, uh, what else have we got got going, Roger? So, a dungeon fantasy powered by GURPS. Uh, this one expires on the 3rd of January, so again, uh, get a move on if you, if you decide you want it. So, this, this is a little complicated. Uh, it's as distinct from GURPS dungeon fantasy. Uh, yes, of course it is. Though they are broadly compatible. Basically, GURPS dungeon fantasy is like GURPS Action and GURPS Monster Hunters. It is essentially the work that a particularly energetic GM would do before a campaign to say that you know these abilities are in, those abilities are out, this is what the campaign is going to be about. The, these are the uh, shortcuts we're going to use for this particular game. That's that kind of thing. Yeah. So that GURPS Dungeon Fantasy was the first of these, and it's the one that spawned most supplements. So, And all of those are pretty much fairly directly usable. Dungeon Fantasy powered by GURPS does not attempt to maintain compatibility with GURPS, or rather it doesn't have it as an absolute um, no. priority. It, it is broadly compatible with GURPS. It's been described as GURPS 4.5, incorporating a bunch of small changes that, you know, had had the designers been aware of at the time GURPS 4th came out, might well have been in GURPS 4th. Mm -hmm. Things like cost factors on weapons, so you, you don't have to you know, multiply by 50 and then whatever. Yeah. Um, <laughs> Well, more specifically, if you have two things that would be times 50 in themselves, what you have is something that costs about times 100 rather than times 2,500. Oh, boy. Which, which, make, which makes it much more usable. Uh, but anyway, it, it is e even more than GURPS Dungeon and Fantasy. It's very streamlined. It's um, like the like the existing GURPS Dungeon and Fantasy. It is very much you are going to have a, don't call it a class, uh you are going to be the melee fighter, you are going to be the wizard, you are going to be the sneaky bugger. Um, yeah. And this has both sets of choices you make when you're starting the character and things you can do when you get some experience points later and uh, get, more, get more powerful. Yeah. 
So, um, what this bundle is, uh, th this is, I should say, from the Kickstarter in 2016, um, which I don't know the full details, but certainly it was it was not the towering success that it was expected to be. Mm. So, uh, what you get here is pretty much all the rules material. There's a couple of companion volumes and so on. Um, but none of the adventures. On the other hand, if what you're doing is porting an adventures from other places, um, then yeah. that's not a problem. It, it's not as if there's a shortage of dungeon-orientated adventures out there, yeah. if you're prepared to do a bit of hacking about to make the rules work. Well, we may, we may come back to this, depending on what we talk about later, but this is... If you want a rules-heavy dungeon bash game, and I, I will readily admit this is rules-heavy by the standards of well, games. Um, you know, it, it's not more complicated than D&D or Pathfinder, but it's not wildly less complicated either. It just puts its complication in different places. But if if what you're looking for is a Dungeon Bash game with quite heavy rules uh, that lets you do stuff, yeah, it's pretty good. I will say that it is, it is it's very fit for its environment, but um, it's it's not going to provide much support if you want to move out of the dungeon. I'm not talking about wilderness adventures. I'm talking about moving back into polite society. This is all about uh, heroic persons going down in, in the in the in the underground or or across the per the perilous uh, landscape and doing big heroic things. What happens when you get back? Isn't covered by this game. Well, it's no. it's covered in a very loose sense of you know here here is how you sell your loot and how much you're going to get for it and that, and that, and that is about as much interaction with the um, uh, with the uh, rest of the fictional universe as as you're you're expected to want. And uh, being fair, that's yeah. that I suspect that's what most people looking for a dungeon bash game as opposed to a generic game are likely to want. It's worth bearing in mind that both this and GURPS Dungeon Fantasy are, are influenced both by classic dungeons like what you and I played, and oh, the, back in the day, back in the day, and the more modern video game style. So you you do not start as as a weak, pathetic character. You start at least pretty competent right at the beginning of the adventure, and, and that sort of thing. Um, the, this can be a little disorientating when you get down into the fine details, but yeah, shrug. I shrug. When, yeah. when, when I want a dungeon bash, uh, one, one of these, either DF powered by GURPS or GURPS Dungeon Fantasy, is generally what I reach for because, well, I already know GURPS. Also, on the 3rd of January, I'll just briefly mention uh, the material from Free League, uh, which includes um, some stuff that's already been offered and some stuff that's new. Um, Free League's big thing is Tales from the Loop, but they have a number of other games using variants on the same system. Varsan is one of them, which is uh, horror in the um, in the uh, in the Nordic area. I believe eighteenth, um, nineteenth sort of century. Yeah, and they include a uh, they include an expansion for uh, Mythic Britain and Ireland in in this release. Um, I uh, I would like to mention Forbidden Lands, which is a fantasy uh, a wilderness that's just uh, shrugged off a, dre a deadly curse, exploring it as basically um, scrap merchants and um, and, and dungeon uh, delvers, and starting to build up new lands. There, it looks interesting, but I haven't read it all the way through. There's also Dragonbane, which is a reworking of Drachen und Tremona, which was for the Nordic area. Um, the uh, the most famous um, and founding of their uh, native role-playing game. Yeah, it was the first Swedish-language role-playing game, as I understand it. Yeah, and I would say that um, I, I would say, uh, say that look, that looks interesting, and I sort of favour it because it includes a RuneQuest-derived duck, or rather mallard species, <laughs> as play, playing characters. They've also got um, their updated and to their own system version of Twilight 2000, which some of you may uh, may remember. And there's also a thing called Mutant Year Zero, which I not only know nothing about, but I want to know nothing about. And the next thing. Well, as I understand it, um, the 
free league system is broadly the same one that we both played in the Alien RPG. Yeah. I mean, uh, tweaked a bit for the individual setting, but basically the same dice pool system. Uh, uh, Dragon Blade seems to be an exception to that, because it has to have a D20 rolled, because of course you do. And for the Alien setting, I found this incredibly frustrating. <laughs> it, it simply didn't allow me to do things that would be perfectly normal things for those people in that situation to do. So that's the downside. On the upside, uh, when, I, when I ran an adventure for Alien myself, I converted it to Fudge, which was frankly trivial. So it's, ve- it's very easy to convert if you don't like the system. I, from what I've seen of, of Forbidden Lands, whilst I'm not, I, I might, I might be willing to, uh, to use their their system. There is a lot of good stuff in there for people who want adventure and dungeon settings and want a way to generate them quickly and make them available to people quickly. And I'm uh, never, but, I'm uh, never going to turn down um, 19th century horror. Let's face it. <laughs> that's true. Who would? Who would? On to the next thing? Yeah, so on um, in the matter of re- returning an original offer and adding new stuff, uh, Mongoose Traveller is back. Um, and if, if you followed our suggestions, then you already have the older offer, because, frankly, I thought it was pretty darn good. Um, so what, what you get from this offer, or two offers, um, one you've seen at least some of before, it's the starter set, which has... A, it's, it's complicated... <laughs> It, it has a it, version it has, of the basic rules. Yeah, not the same version that you you may see elsewhere, which is complicated for that reason. Uh, but you've got a companion with more rules. You've got the the um, central supply catalogue update. You've got various stuff, basically. Um, it, it is a little scant at times, but it's basically there. Uh, and, and it's, as we said, I th- we think it's pretty good. The new one is Traveller Mercenaries, which... Okay, so military SF was always a thing. It was one of the influences on Traveller. I suspect, um, given the era, uh, Jerry Pornell's Falkenberg's Legion in particular. But the, the basic, yeah. we we are guys who fight on a planet, and uh, our employer hates us, and the enemy and the locals hate us, and the enemy hates us. And but we're, yeah. darn, darn it, we're just so goddamn heroic. N- note, oh, yeah, military science fiction written by somebody who hadn't been at war. As as opposed to Hammer Slammers by David Drake, which has some of the, many of the same tropes, but never makes the mistake because Drake was in Vietnam of saying, "Oh boy, this war stuff is great fun, isn't it?" So, yeah. R.I.P. David Drake, who uh, died a few days before we recorded this. Uh, but anyway, enough of my ranting on military SF. Uh, this is the great big package for you want military SF in your traveller game. Here's what we got. Now, as I say, this was always a thing in Traveller. Um, it there was the Mercenary book, one of the core books of the original set, yeah, which pretty much is, is covers the same subject matter, but obviously in much skimpier detail. Um, one thing this doesn't have that that did is enhanced um, military character generation because, well, you've already got that. Yeah, you, you've got quite crunchy detail generation already, um, but. It's it combines a variety of things. So, what the mercenary campaign, the, yeah, what is now Traveller Mercenary, is is three books in itself. That's a lot of this stuff. Um, yeah. And the basic idea that you know, you you will have your um, mercenary ticket, which is the, the 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 job that you are trying to get done, and when you've got it done, you will, you will go home or go off and do something else. Divided then into missions, which might themselves are multiple goals. A thing with a single goal is an operation. And if the scale gets small enough, then you can drop down to actual traveller rules. Um, But there's some very good material on how to integrate PCs. You know, uh, here here is my traveller character. I want to join up with a mercenary unit. What sort of unit is going to offer me a job? What sort of job are they going to offer me? Based on what what my actual experience. Um... It's got the idea of well, you know, the the PCs unit is the mercenary unit, and you go you go from one ticket to another, or maybe you could be part of a big war. Um, 
you have the where, where are the PCs actually going to be in the structure of operations? You know, are, is one of them going to be the commander? Are they going to be in the same unit? Are they going to be split apart? Well, the the usual um, problems of military games. Notice the, these are British writers, so so they um, are very quick to advance the idea of the NPC commander because often no player wants to be. My experience of American players is they always want to be the commander. <laughs> It also admits that if you just have a, a series of fight scenes, they're going to get boring. So yeah, mi- mix it up a bit. Have stuff for you know PCs to do on an individual level, as well as the great big battles. And it's, it strikes me that that's a problem with uh, military science fiction fiction as well. Um, that you have to you have to keep shifting the scene from various levels to explain what's actually going on. Oh boy! Um, this time the big space battle has salvos of forty thousand missiles. Oh dear, let's let's not go that way. <laughs> there is also a, a large chunk of mini game which, frankly, reminded me a bit of GURPS Mass Combat. Um, it's at the same sort of level of resolution. So uh-huh. you, you you have your unit stat line. Um, you have um, not only how does the battle go, but also how can you affect the battle by doing things beforehand. Yeah, you, know, you gather intelligence on the yeah. enemy, and this will give you a bonus. Uh, during during the fight, uh, it, it's it gets a lot more complex than Gert's Mass Combat. Uh, it, it's got all sorts of tactical stances and all sorts of stuff like that. Um, or you can do blunt resolution with incident generation. In other words, this is broadly what happened, and here is a thing for the PCs to get involved in as a side yeah. effect. And this is all just in book one. Um, book two is uh, the the logistics of recruiting and running a mercenary force, and book three is types of ticket that you might get involved with. Then there are mercenary adventures. Uh, yes, one of them is called Bug Hunt, but there are three others. Uh, mercenary of Chartered, Mercenaries of Chartered Space, which is basically a list of existing mercenary companies and what basically what, what sort of mercenary-shaped holes are there in each of the major powers of the Traveller universe. Yeah. Uh, there's a catalogue of even bigger guns. Um there's a book of specialist forces, uh, things like armoured infantry and engineers and so on, they, they, and they have individual rules. They also have something that I, I suspect the Third Imperium I, I knew as a child w- wouldn't put up with, which is Starmerks, i.e. mercenary naval forces. I seem to remember yeah. that. Yeah. To ca- carefully, carefully escorted to and from their jobs so they don't get enthusiastic in peaceful space. Yeah, yeah. I'm I'm not sure how all this works, particularly given um, what we already know about the running costs of starships. But yeah, eh, anyway, it could work. Um, also, in this bundle, there is Solomani Front, which is not actually a mercenary adventure per se. It, it or it, it's more of a campaign setting. It's got some adv- suggestions for how you could put a um, specific campaign together, but it's more background data than here is an actual adventure. It's it's about the enemy of the uh, Imperium, who happens to be descended from the people of um, what we laughingly call uh, modern day Earth, and they're a bunch of uh, racist and uh, authoritarian nerks, as far as we can tell. Or at least somebody is going to a lot of trouble to make sure the Empire thinks so. Oh, let's not go with, with 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 that level of Illuminati. <laughs> no, no, no. But but uh, the, I'm looking forward to reading that one uh, because uh, it's very difficult to be fair to both sides. But in any case, if your ambitions for your traveller game, or indeed your game, include uh, high tech military SF, uh, frankly, I think this is probably one of the, one of the best uh, treatments of it I've seen. I quite like the traveller stuff already, as I, as I've said before. Um, honestly, military SF isn't particularly to my taste. I would I would rather be on on the little tactical level, like most games. But yeah, if that's the thing you want to do, this is this there is a lot of material for doing it with. And what I particularly like is the background details, that, so that you can have the resolution of well, yes, you you won the battle, but you expended so many munitions that you that you're going to be in, in debt and things <laughs> things of that nature. Which, which is frankly much more interesting than, oh, we just blew up the enemy. Supreme excellence in war lies in persuading him to surrender without having to fight him. Mm-hmm. Anyway. How many uh, mines do you need for a minefield? One. 
joys of inducing doubt in the enemy. But anyway, uh, uh, so that's Morgus Traveller Mercenaries to the 8th of January. And the one that lasts the longest to, I think, the 10th of January is Numenera Discovery. Mm-hmm. Um, this is, uh, and Numenera Horizons, it's two offers. Numenera is uh, one of the major works of Monty Cook, who um, is a designer I have great admiration for and great frustration with. Um, he started doing um, things like Ptolus, which is a magnificent um, city-based setting for uh, uh, for D and D and other D twenty based systems. It's oh, uh, back, it's back in the day. He he was running, working for Graham's Designers Workshop. Did some Traveller twenty three hundred stuff. Uh, but he uh, but. Uh, that was about the last thing he did, which I fully appreciated and understood. He's been get, heading off into the weird ever since. Um, Newman Air, I think, is about the last thing he did that I can uh, even partially recommend because it is it sets far, far distant in, in the future. Um, nine complete foot collapses of the universe. Uh, ahead of now <laughs> and uh, and earth is a place which is which is navel deep in uh, the remnants of earlier more powerful civilizations and tons of their kit that you don't really understand and um, and and it's it's magnificent it's beautifully described and detailed and i am utterly unable to get any sort of purchase on it, but you might be different. Um, yeah, I, I have. It, it's the the setup sounds really interesting. I mean, obviously, cliche is about sufficiently advanced technology, but you know, yeah. let, let's start there and move on. Um, what whenever I hear about an actual adventure, it sound, tends to sound awfully like a dungeon bash. Yeah, uh, it's a dungeon. Well, a, a dungeon is a place where people of a far distant time left things that may be valuable to you or dangerous to you and you don't really understand them. It's a hole in the ground with monsters and valuable stuff in it and you've got a fighter and a wizard and a, and a face. Yeah, and you don't... And, and it's just the, the, the degree of technological difference between the people who dug the dungeon here and uh, the people who dug, dug the dungeon in a standard D&D setting is so immense that that weird stuff happens and you can't get any handle on it. So Now, this may just be the um, games I've heard about. I'm sure one could do more interesting things with it. Um, But that's why I have perhaps less enthusiasm for this setting than I might. All right. Uh, We're we're not trying to discourage you from buying this honest. Um, Well, we're we're talking about it. We find it interesting. I just found it a bit of a disappointment in reality. The first offer duplicates the uh, Numenera Destiny offer that has happened in the past. The new stuff is Numenera Horizons and its expansions for the settings. And if you didn't, f- and if you find the the Ninth World um, frustrating and difficult to get a handle on, then uh, the the expansions inc- include multiverses and introducing a gate to hell. And um, all, all all sorts of of other things. Oh, like, the Joneses uh, have one. Why can't we have a gate to hell? Yeah, um, and uh, lots of adventures. In fact, just about everything that's been written for it uh, since the, the release of Destiny, which was, I think, the second edition, basically the revised edition of Numenera itself. So I feel I I, I feel I want to read it, and I feel it may be interesting, but I I also feel. There are basic problems with it. Um, if you if you already got Numenera, then you want Numenera Horizons. Um, and if you haven't got a Numenera, think very hard. All right. But this is a relatively cheap way to get into it if you do fancy it. True. All right. Uh, it won't break it. It won't won't break break the bank, and it won't weigh down down your shelves. And that is as far as I'm prepared to go.
turning of the year is upon us. Um, whenever you're listening to this, you're only going to get it after we've sung old, old Lang Syne. Um, and uh, we're sort of thinking about the years ahead. Roger, your plans are probably more specific than mine. Let's talk about your plans first and hope we need, never need never get to mine. Well, I, I, have, I seem to have cycled back into the running games phase of my role-playing life. They... they in theory, you know, ideally I'd be running one and playing two others or something like that, but it, they, they all seem to shift to me running at the same time, I such as life. Feeling, yeah. uh, but the, the game that I've just started running, uh, I think when this comes out, there should be two episodes of actual play plus the character generation session available. I'm talking about The Enemy Within, the classic campaign for Warhammer fantasy roleplay uh, in its Cubicle 7 4th edition incarnation. Mm-hmm. So... I, I am new to... Well, I, I've played original Warhammer Fantasy roleplay a little bit, but I don't have yeah. significant memories of it. Um, there are lots of things I really like about this and uh, the rules so far and, and a couple of real clunkers. My, my impression so far, for example, character generation, I, you, you always get this thing of, well, you know, I, I'd like to be an X, but yeah. I have to choose in advance, am I going to roll and maybe get something I really hate? Or am I going to choose the excellent? The the thing that Warhammer does in in several places is say, okay, here is your choice of whatevers. Now you roll. If you like it, then you get some bonus experience, and that's fine. If you don't like it, you roll again. If you like that, you get a little less bonus experience. And if you don't, and if you don't like your second try, then you just pick something. You get no bonus experience, but you get exactly what you wanted. Now, the great thing about this is it doesn't give you an incentive not to roll. So if yeah. if you if you roll and think, well, yeah, I hadn't considered playing one of those, but hey, it could be fun. Yeah, it gives you a reason to do that rather than just fixate up front on I want to be a particular thing. So so I really like that. Yeah. Um. Lots of things have a stat bonus, and that stat bonus is the first digit of your stat. It's that simple. Your stat is on a percentile scale. So, I, I like this. So the stat bonus in, in, in weapons or in what? It, well, uh, every, everything is based on a stat. So you, you, you will have, say, for example, your weapon skill stat. Yeah. It, it does show some of its Warhammer Fantasy Battles roots still. Uh, to the first two stats are weapon skill and ballistic skill, but say say you you say you had a, a thirty for your WS, you can then add to that with advances in the stat, which will put it up by a point each time you get one. Mm-hmm. But advances gradually get more expensive as you have more of them. Uh, so what you ideally want to do to be to cheap be most economical experience points is get some advances in your stat and some advances in your skill. And if you maybe put some points into a talent as well, so you you'll have your stat. Then you you get advances in your skill, which add to the stat. So your your skill with as it might be dagger would be your weapon skill plus some more for your dagger skill. And that adds, and those are always adds are always going on to the tens digit. No, no, the, the, these these just all add up. Okay, right. Um, but. There, then there there are talents which are basically special, slightly rule breaking or special abilities with slight uh, special rules cases of their own. Okay. So it might be you know you you do not suffer from this particular penalty when you are caught flat footed or whatever else, and some of those can add add to your uh, effective value as well. But when it comes to combat, uh, you will roll your weapon skill. Yeah. Uh, the enemy will get a defense of some sort if you and your success level. Again, um, I, I have a skill of 67. I rolled 23. 6 minus 2 is 4. My success level is 4. Okay. I think I see. Which is nice and quick. And and if your success level is higher than the enemy's, then you do some damage. And your damage is your success level plus the weapon's damage, which might include your strength bonus. So you can okay. do lots of damage with a tiny weapon if you're really, really good with it. Basically, <laughs> okay, that makes sense. Um, so th- this this is nice. It, 
combat seems to be running pretty fast. We're, we're all fairly new to the system. Uh, various people, various of our, of the Watson Hall group, have played earlier incarnations. Um, yeah. But yeah, we're, we're picking it up as we go along. Uh, death is quick. Uh, so so far, death has been quick for the NPCs. Yeah. Um, but you know, none of that t- tedious hanging around, rolling your constitution every every turn. Your arms off. Yeah. On the other hand, um, some careers just yeah. We do still have careers. They're they're a bit less restricted than they were mostly, but some careers uh, like well, if if you are of the servant class, um, you just aren't allowed to learn combat skills. Full stop. There is something about this which, which annoys me, but um, I, I can see it's modelling the the fiction, I suppose, except for the fact that. One's manservant is always there to bonk the monster on the head when you are temporarily overcome. Uh, we we did find out that it was actually easier if you didn't have relevant skills to throw a rock at somebody than to pick it up and hit them with it. <laughs> but, yeah. Uh, what what I do like about the careers is that they have statuses built in. So, if if you are being say a witchfinder and and you are a there, there are four levels in each career of, of yeah, basically, yeah. I've, I've just got into this, and I'm on to, I'm on the top of my game. But each of them carries with it a social status, um, which is, you don't need to pay for this. You just get it by virtue of, well, you know, pe- people are scared of top-ranking witchfinders, therefore they're going to treat me like minor nobility, or whatever. Actual nobility gets some of this. It's very, very much a distinction in your, your peasants, your, your townsfolk slash burgeoning middle class, and your nobles. But yeah, I, I like the way that's baked into the rules in quite a simple way, so that the adventure can then say, okay, you know, uh, sil- silver status characters—that's your middle class types—will yeah. will, will will automatically be welcomed here, and um, bronze status your presence won't, without having to go into into fiddly detail. So that's very nice. Um, there are lots of little tweaks that you can do to your character, even though you're basically going to be rubbish at most things. Because uh, it's Warhammer, yeah. there are lots of little things you can do to say, "Okay, my, my um, servant is not the same thing; is not the same character as this other servant with similar stats." Because we've we've learned different skills, we, we've uh, picked up different talents, that kind of thing. Yeah, I do find it sometimes a bit unclear about. I I would like to see a more checklisty style in the character generation. So you say, "Okay," rather than m- muddling it all up in one paragraph, I'd say, "Okay, you pick one talent off this list." And one tunnels off that list, which is what is what it actually takes a paragraph to say. <laughs> um, so yeah, so far liking it. Um, at what this about, point, uh, what about themes? What about um, feel of the world? There may be two, two people out there who don't know anything about uh, Warhammer Fantasy Roleplay. Well. I mean, its origins are clearly in uh, 1980s anti-Thatcherite counterculture. Mm. Um, And particularly the anti-Thatcher-Reagan culture. The the, the feeling at the time, as I recall it at least, was that American fantasy was, as I'm sure we've said before on the show, about uh, shiny heroes with teeth that go ting. Yeah. Uh, And Warhammer is... It's not a dark world. I found an article by Graham Davis about that. It's 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 not hopeless. It's not despair filled. Yeah. It's grimy fantasy. Uh, you know, there is very little that is polished and shiny, and if it is, it it's probably rotting from inside. But at the same time, you could you could be a salt of the earth, cheeky cockney sparrow, or Holy Roman Empire equivalent. Yeah, and and potentially prosper. Uh, th- this is very much um, the the sort of character who would be played by Sid James is likely to prosper in in Warhammer. <laughs> oh, Matron! Uh, <laughs> I I, I hmm. I'm sure one could take it terribly seriously, but I, may, many of our listeners may have heard Watson Hall actual play recordings before, and will have some idea of how implausible that is. Yes, uh, adapt adapt your uh, material to uh, to your players. Um, how, how do you feel looking forward to 
actually getting the whole epic thing done? If you, I mean, is this a, a, a one-year project, a ten-year project? What? Uh, it's it's hard to say. We're we're two sessions in and um, halfway through the first chunk of adventure, which is about a third of the first book or five. I I'm right. told that book five, which I haven't got hold of yet, uh, ha- has some key suggestions about how things should have been going all along. So perhaps I ought to get hold of that before I uh, go <laughs> <too> much further. <laughs> Um, one, one thing I do like about the adventures, actually, they they call them uh, boxes for grognards. I.e., if if you played this this adventure back in the day, uh, yeah. here is how it can be tweaked so that the players don't know what to expect. But honestly, I find it more interesting just to regard that as permiss- permissible variations. You know, maybe the ambush doesn't happen here. Maybe it's a different group of people who want yeah. the, who want the thing, and therefore instead of ambushing you here, they will do something else over there. And and this is how it will look. And the boxes I've read so far, at least, are quite good about saying, and this will have knock-on effects. So try try to keep this bit the same, but feel free to change that bit. That kind of thing. Yeah. So I, I I like that. They're, they're getting away from uh, something that was in some of the originals of this NPC is just going to automatically evade your, your attempts to pursue him and slip away. And he's still good. He still probably will. But there isn't that absolute, I don't care how well you rolled, you can't catch him. Yeah. Uh, if if I say um, that there are people out there who are still bitter about James Wallace burning their boat, uh, there's there's a section I think in in book two of, of the five book series in in the new uh, layout where yeah. the the PCs have charge of of a river vessel. I remember it. Yes. And then the event, you know, the adventure moves on, and they're going to have to go inland and do other stuff to carry on with that in the original publication of this uh this was um right well your boat got burned down to the waterline nothing you can do about it tough and now it's well here are the guys who are going to who are going to try to come and burn your boat they're reasonably competent at it but you know if you have sufficient precautions you can prevent that if what you want to if what the party wants to do is play traveler-esque river trading for a bit. Well, yeah. they can, and, and here is how to tweak the background so that the Empire doesn't collapse while they're having fun doing that. <laughs> yeah, messing about on boats. Um, so so I, I'm really liking this so far. I'm, I'm glad you're having fun. But the, the, uh, the editing is perhaps a bit rough in places, but for the most part, it's working well. Well, maybe I'll, get, uh, maybe I'll give Watson Hall a listen, though I probably won't listen to the character generation thread. Well, it um, is a separate episode. Yeah, okay. Um, my plans are a good deal less um, firmed up. I had some sad news before uh, the Christmas in that a long-term member of one of my groups has died, passed away, Rob Hammerstone. Uh, Rob was... Um, anybody who, who would have known him would have known of his uh, qualities as a player and as uh, as a person. He was also blind, and that made a lot of difference to um, our role play in that group for, uh, for, the, for the last several years. One of my ambitions is to pick up some of the things that I haven't done because I wouldn't have had um, an audience for them with uh, one, of my, uh, one of my regular groups. But there's no and, practical way to make them accessible, that's like, that kind yeah, of thing. Uh, yeah, that sort, of, that sort of thing. Well, like, like finally bu- buckling down. And uh, trying to learn how to use a, a, a tabletop for dungeon delving, a tabletop online tabletop for dungeon delving. Mm-hmm. It's something I'd like I'd like to do more of, just to see if it was as much fun as I remember it being. <laughs> and um, and uh, that would be something of a long term project. There's also some stuff I've been setting stuff I've been fiddling with, which may turn up with one of my other groups it's um at the moment it's a pseudo it's a pseudo chinese uh fantasy setting in a uh in a province the other side of um of a um, high mountain pass somewhat detached from the emperor and it's called the mountains are high the emperor is far away hey. and it's playable in two modes Either as the native ne'er do wells of the province, or as the unfortunate uh, imperial official 
has just been lumbered with the job of uh, being in charge of it. I had a suspicion that one of my groups would like to be one and one of my groups would like to be the other. But it's it's all very up in the air and very um, good intentions and it's the other side of a large mountain of hard work, which is, mm. a, thing I, which is a thing I take in very light doses nowadays. I mean, fun hard work, but you know, as we're recording this, uh, we're, we are 19 days into Advent of Code, which is fun hard work for me. So... That's the bit. That's the bit of your blog. I say, oh, he's doing that today. No, <laughs> without commenting ever. Ah, uh, I have a Christmas present right by me here and now, just for the last bit of this um, of this masterpiece to start the year. I have been given a book entitled "Monsters, Aliens, and Holes in the Ground." A Guide to Tabletop Role-Playing Games from D&D to Mothership by somebody called Stu, spelled S-T-U, Horvath, of whom I know nothing. But this strikes me as a good basis for a Christmas quiz. I would ask you, Roger, to give me a number between... Ooh, let's have a look. Um, I shall fire up the old random number generator. Between one and... 386. Oh, hang on, no, that's the uh, 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 one and 379. 44, sir. 44, that's going to be early in the history. Well, we've established that you're a gaming dinosaur third class, was it? Yeah. 36, okay. Ah, uh, that's right in the middle of the Advanced Dungeons and Dra- Dungeons and Dragons Advanced Dungeons and Dragons setting. Tell me, what can you tell me about S One Tomb of Horrors? Okay, a famously hard adventure. I believe it was actually written by Gary Gygax. Um, very much of the style of early adventures. As in, you know, there's a dead end here. You can search for secret doors. If you cannot find the secret door, then you just cannot get through that dead end and you cannot go on with the adventure because this is the only path to victory. Uh, there are random choices where some, some of them will destroy your character and some of them are the only path to victory. It was clearly something some people enjoyed at the time. I do find it very exclusionary because, well, you know, you, you've got to be in that mindset to play the thing. that there, If you were so foolish as to be actually role-playing, you wouldn't have a lot yeah. of fun here. I think that's fair. Uh, it says that Gygax wrote it originally for his most experienced players, particularly Rob Kuntz and his son Ernie. Um, and it's... Uh, the, the tomb is a literal death trap full of dangerous mechanisms and deadly puzzles for players to pit their wits against. Uh, the most well-known trap involves the war with the carving of a great green devil's face, its mouth open. Hmm. Plenty of room... Oh, dear. Um, yeah, plenty of room to, for those to le- who leap in first to get destroyed. Yeah, I think I think your memory is intact. Uh, you have passed the test. Um, give me a random number and I'll see what I can do. Uh, 291. 291. 291. I turn to 291. Oh, 291 is Castles and Crusades. Ah. I know absolutely nothing about it except that it is a D&D derived second generation F20, second or third generation F20, with an emphasis, ah, oh, it was it was a it was the house system of something I think was called the Castles and Crusades Society. So basically, this is somebody's um, localized set of rules worked up and published. But beyond that, I know absolutely nothing. Okay, the one I know of may not be the same thing. Um, it is that. 
which is the main system sold by Troll Lord Games, who are what one of the OSR yeah. gaming companies. Uh, that that is using what they call their Siege Engine, which is their core mechanics for their OSR games, yeah. which is basically a stat check system with various modifiers for various things. Uh, I have not played Castles and Crusades because it is basically a fight the monster, take the treasure game, which, as we previously established, is not my favourite thing. Um, however, they also have... Uh, we played it on Watson Hall. It was a, a Victorian steampunk superhero setting, the name of which has escaped me. Uh, but that that was good fun. So, hmm. okay. Well, I, I, we, we we did struggle a lot with the mechanics, um, partly because they weren't always terribly clearly expressed, partly because, uh, as turned out, the version of the game that went to print was the unrevised final draft as opposed to the revised final draft and they only found out once they'd paid for all the printing. So it, it, have... it, it was missing one actual editorial pass that the rules themselves had got. Good grief. Well, that is not the worst printing disaster and editing disaster in the role-playing history, which I think was Aria role-playing in the something or other. Monomyth. And the monomyth, God help us. <laughs> um, I can only give myself half a point for that. So, Roger, will you take one more pass? Okay. Uh, ooh, I've gone early again, 37. If, if this is more AD&D, let's, let's re-roll. Let's re-roll. Uh, 301. 301, a little onwards. 301-303. Okay, 301 is Trail of Cthulhu. Oh, well, I know a bit about that. Not going to say a lot. Go on, come on, show your omniscience. Well, what, what, do, you, what do you want me to say about it? <laughs> so, t- t- I, I think it was the second gumshoe game after the Isa Terrorists, which was the um, yeah. proof of concept one that, that, that came out first. Um it it has a complicated licensing situation, basically because of Chaosium's death grip on certain words which are associated with Lovecraft, even though the actual copyrights on his work has long since expired. But basically, it is an investigative game uh, using the Gumshoe system. And well, the the, the key thing about that, uh, as described when when it was coming out, is you always find the clue. Yeah. Yeah, you you don't have to roll and then, as we were just saying, you 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 don't roll to find the secret door. Don't find the secret door, and then you're then you're stymied. Uh, you will always find at, at the least the minimum trail of evidence that will let you, in theory, p- progress in the adventure. Yeah, it has this uh, spending of abilities thing, which I. Found irksome until I realised it was basically a spotlight sharing mechanism. You know, I, I, I've I've do, I've had my ration of um, awesome forensic entomology for this episode. Therefore, I need to I need to stop being awesome and let somebody else have a go. Mm-hmm. Uh, and similarly for feats of strength or being amazing in combat or whatever else, this does some sometimes produce some physically unrealistic results. But if one thinks of it as a, as a narrative mechanism, it's perhaps a little more acceptable to me anyway. Um, it's it's an enjoyable system. Um, I'm personally happier with more simulationist systems, but there have yeah. been some jolly. Well, I think particularly because some authors just don't want the faff of writing a full simulationist adventure. Uh, so, so there's some stuff for, for trail which is, it has not been and will not be converted to more conventional systems officially. But it's very easy to convert yourself if you want to. Yeah, I, I really think that the the, the central idea of uh, of a trail of Cthulhu of the Gumshoe system could have been incorporated into simulationist gaming by saying a skill level of this level of the uh, of this don't even bother to roll. You're going to find the clue, and it. Um, I don't know why I've never played. Trail of Cthulhu. I have done um, uh, 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 an extended um, uh, a gumshoe system um, with uh, uh, with Knights Black Agents, 
But for Trailer Cthulhu, I don't know, maybe there's something depress depressing, even more depressing than the average um, <laughs> the, than the average uh, Cthulhu adventure. Once you get rid of the... You can always roll and try mechanic. Well, where, where classic uh, Cthulhu, uh, as in Call of, has a fair medium optimistic i mean lots of horrible things are going to happen to you but a lot of the time you can prevail um trail has i think they call it pulp and purist and its yeah. pulp is pretty much where call of cthulhu is by default and its purist is more like sandy's original idea you, know, you are not ever going to re recover sanity doom is upon you yeah yeah, there is at least one adventure published for Trade of Cthulhu in which it is quite explicit: the PCs cannot win; they are basically tourists. Which yeah. I, I would be very pissed off with if somebody ran that for me, or if I bought it and planned to run it for somebody else. But shrug. Well, I was going to say earlier on that uh, I take a more gloomy view of um, of the universe of Warhammer uh, than you do, but maybe that's me uh, rather than the game system. Give me one more number so I can try and redeem myself by being a successful pundit. Why does it keep rolling six? Uh, have 229. 229. There it is. Is cult. And the only thing hmm. I know about cult is it's supposed to be exceedingly gory, exceedingly unpleasant, and um, adult in a nastier way than the World of Darkness stuff was. Um, I'm sorry. World of Darkness, as, as originally presented, is Munchkin power fantasy. Uh, yeah. That's how it was played, anyway. Uh, we, we mentioned this a little while ago because there was a bundle of holding about it. Yeah. Uh, so, to, to recap in brief, uh, it is one of the few horror games that, that I have found actually horrifying, and if that's what you want, it will do it very well. Yeah, it, it, here it's... Uh... Yeah, it's, um, what is it called? A repeating. Oh. In reality is an illusion maintained by the demiurge to keep humanity from uh, uh, realising its own inherent divinity. Oh, not only despair, but pride as well. Um, and, and heresy. Let's not forget and the heresy. heresy. There's a lot of heresy here. Um, all right, I think I hereby declare Roger champion of this uh, of this brief expedition into seeing how deep our deep knowledge goes, and uh, and we'll, we'll defer to him. Well, you know where to send the gin. Oh yes, that reminds me. Your Christmas present has been arranged. <laughs> we will pause there, hoping you've been having um, a merry and satisfying end of the year festivities and hoping that you have lots of interesting things to do and tell us about in the upcoming year. If you want to tell us anything about anything, what's the best way of doing that, Roger? Uh, leave a message on the website or email podcast at tekeli.ly. And we will give your words our due and ardent attention. <laughs> Take care now.